If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This is an Apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. I decided I was out. It was so terrible and scary, and waiting tables is not as fun as they say. John Krasinski. John Krasinski is the runt of his family standing six foot three. He's dwarfed by his two older brothers. One is six eight, the other six nine. But while at home, Krasinski's height might not have been impressive, at school, it landed him the role of Daddy Warbucks in a middle school production of Annie. The play was fun, but he says he wasn't exactly lining up for the next one. So by high school, when an acquaintance asked him to take part in a play he was writing, a parody of their Minnesota high school called Senior Show, he was flattered, but quick to turn down the offer. Krasinski told him he wasn't an actor. The acquaintance said, I don't know, I think you could be a good actor. Looking back, Krasinski says it was the first time anyone had suggested to him that acting could be something to consider. And somewhere deep inside, a wheel started to turn. That high school acquaintance 
was B.J. Novak. Come the fall of his senior year, it was time for Krasinski to apply to colleges. His grades were solid, and he decided he wanted to become a teacher, maybe an English teacher. He applied to the arts program at Brown University, the Ivy League. But he was rejected. Then by some miracle, midway through the following year, Brown selected 32 of its most promising rejects to join in the second semester, and Krasinski was one of them. So, he says he arrived in Providence, Rhode Island, alone, hungry, and cold that January. Joining halfway through the year meant Krasinski felt completely out of place. It seemed everyone around him had already made friends, found their people. So he thought he may as well keep using his height to his advantage. And he made his way to the campus fitness center to try out for Brown's basketball team. But Krasinski says he walked up to the gym doors, and by the time they swung all the way open, he'd said... No, thank you. The guys on the court were too big, too good, and already on their second practice of the day, and it wasn't even lunchtime. He let the doors close and backed away slowly. But on his walk back to his dorm, Krasinski noticed something nailed to a tree. It was a flyer for a sketch comedy troupe. On a whim... Krasinski auditioned for the Out of Bounds comedy troupe. And to his surprise, he got in. Before he even took the stage, he says he could tell he was surrounded by talented humans. Everyone in the room was smart, they were quick, and they were so, so funny. He'd found his people. Of course, Krasinski says he was terrible. The best parts he'd play through his four years at Brown were Armed Guard Number 4, Terrified Hostage Number 2, oh, and a few lines in Die Hard the Musical. But it didn't matter. He was bitten by the acting bug. And by graduation, Krasinski wanted more. So he enrolled at the National Theatre Institute in Connecticut. Krasinski says theatre school was life-changing. When the 16-week intensive program came to an end, his mom came to pick him up. And as they pulled out of the driveway, he told her he'd made a decision. He said, I'm moving to New York, and I'm going to become an actor. She paused for half a second. She said, great. Then she told him. The only thing she asked was that after three years, if it looked like being an actor wasn't going to work out, if he didn't have a bite or even a nibble, that he promised her he'd quit on his own. Because as his mother, she said she'd never be able to ask him to give up on his dream. Krasinski paused for half a second, then set his sights on Manhattan. Life in New York was not nearly as glamorous as Krasinski imagined it would be. Despite what the movies suggested, being a waiter slash actor wasn't carefree or fun. He said, frankly, it was terrible. 
He was going on audition after audition, but the best part he could land was a single episode of Law and Order Criminal Intent and the role of a process server on one episode of Ed. He became a script intern on Late Night with Conan O'Brien, but a year went by and he hadn't landed any parts. The following year, Krasinski played messenger number three in a movie called Taxi, and he landed a couple scenes in Kinsey. But that was it for all of 2004. Every other casting director he tested for rejected John Krasinski. By 2005, he landed single episodes of CSI and Without a Trace. You name a New York-based crime show and you'll find the name John Krasinski buried somewhere in the credits. But he was a day player at best, not enough to pay his New York City rent. It was September of 2005, and the end of the year would mark the three-year do-or-die date his mother had given him. So he gave her a call. Krasinski told his mom he was ready to quit acting. He spent his days getting rejected and his nights waiting on less-than-friendly patrons. He was done. So he asked her to come pick him up. But before hopping in the car, she bestowed upon her son a little advice. She told him to wait it out a little longer. Just give it until the end of the year. If still there were no bites, she'd be right there to pick him up. No questions asked. Krasinski reluctantly agreed. Following that conversation, Krasinski didn't land any parts. But, against all odds, by some miracle, he did land a manager willing to take him on. Having a manager for the first time, he could find out about auditions outside of Manhattan. And it was then that he flew to Los Angeles for his very first pilot season. Krasinski auditioned for a pilot in L.A., but the series was immediately rejected by studios. So, dejected, he was getting ready to fly back to New York when his manager told him he should take one last meeting. Her name was Allison Jones. She was a well-respected casting director and, at the very least, a worthwhile connection for Krasinski to make. Jones and Krasinski clicked immediately. She told him she had something big coming down the pike, and he should keep his ears peeled. Krasinski flew back to New York and took a job waiting tables at the Odeon restaurant on West Broadway. Then, three weeks later, his phone rang. It was his manager. It turns out that big thing on the horizon Jones had alluded to was an American remake of the British hit show, The Office. A mockumentary-style comedy out of the UK, starring and created by Ricky Gervais. It followed the day-to-day lives of employees at a nondescript paper company, in a nondescript office building, in a nondescript part of town. NBC had the rights to make the series across the pond, and according to the voice on the other end of the line, they were struggling to cast one character in particular. Gareth Keenan was the BBC comedy's top paper salesman. He's a little bit creepy, a little bit odd, 
and a major suck-up to the boss, David Brent. The American office would call their Gareth Keenan character Dwight Schrute. The casting director remembered Krasinski, so she offered him an audition. And that's when Krasinski did the unthinkable. He turned it down. John Krasinski was a big fan of the British office. In fact, after his shift at the restaurant, he'd once pooled his pennies and gone to the Virgin Records in Union Square to buy the DVD special edition box set. He knew the series inside and out. And he also knew he was no Dwight Schrute. There was, however, a character called Tim Canterbury he thought he'd be perfect for. In the American office, they were calling him Jim Halpert. Jim was sort of the anti-Dwight, kind-faced, dark-haired. So Krasinski told his manager to tell the casting people to let him know when they were casting Jim, and Krasinski would be right over. Well, NBC's casting department didn't love that response. One executive said, and I quote, This dude's done nothing. He's lucky to be called in. No, but honestly, who does he think he is? Krasinski said he had no idea where that confidence came from. All he had to his name were a few episodes of a few crime shows spread out across a few years. But he respected the office. He knew it was revered. He also knew he'd be wrong for such an integral character as Dwight. Five weeks passed. Then something interesting happened. The casting directors over at 30 Rockefeller Plaza found themselves struggling to cast their perfect Jim. So they, begrudgingly, gave Krasinski's manager a call. Krasinski made his way to 30 Rock, where he and six other potential gyms who looked exactly like him were seated in a waiting area. There was catered food, sandwiches, and salads. One of the men fixed himself a plate, then sat down next to Krasinski and said, Are you nervous? Krasinski said he wasn't really. He'd grown accustomed to rejection. He said he was far more nervous for the people creating the show, because the UK office was brilliant, and Americans had a habit of taking quality television and ruining it. The man turned to Krasinski and said, Well, I'll try not to. I'm Greg Daniels, the executive producer. Krasinski almost threw up. He blew it before he even made it into the audition room. He stepped outside and called his manager. He told him he was just going to leave. He was mortified. There was no way he could face Daniels again. But his manager told him he had nothing to lose at this point. He said, stay and do it anyway. They called Krasinski's name. He removed his foot from his mouth and walked gingerly to the casting room door. As soon as Krasinski peered around the audition room door, Greg Daniels said aloud to the room, this is the guy who ruined his own life. And the group of executives burst out laughing. Krasinski swallowed hard and began his audition scene. 
And suddenly, he watched as the executive's laughter morphed from laughing at him to laughing with him. In a bizarre turn of events, his backstage blunder actually warmed up the room. There was no tension, no awkwardness. It was all out on the table. And the audition went really well. Greg Daniels thought so too. So he asked Krasinski to audition again, this time in Los Angeles. Krasinski says when he arrived at the lot, it was like sharks and jets, New York City gyms versus L.A. gyms. He couldn't help but feel intimidated by the L.A. gyms, including Paul Rudd and Steve Zahn. They were actors. He was a waiter. Then in walked an actor named Jenna Fisher, and Krasinski said he knew instantly, before he even saw her act, that she was destined to play the character of Pam, love interest of Jim. He watched as other actors were paired with Fisher in the audition room, and he said to himself, if he didn't test with her, he wasn't going to get the part. She was his only chance. They called his name, and he was paired with someone else. It was over. As the day progressed, one by one, the casting directors cut all the New York actors. Except Krasinski. He was just sitting around, waiting. He figured they must have forgotten to reject him. So, after four hours, he peered into someone else's audition and quietly said to Greg Daniels, I think you forgot to cut me loose. I'm going to head home now. But Daniels told him to wait. He wanted to audition Krasinski one last time. He said, just give me 15 minutes. They called Krasinski over to a mini set, complete with copier and desk. And lo and behold, his scene partner, this time, was Jenna Fisher. Krasinski was so nervous. This was his last chance. He said he felt painfully insecure. But the pair had undeniable chemistry. And when the scene was over, they each gushed over each other's performance. Jenna Fisher was cast. Then, John Krasinski. The office had its Pam and Jim. Steve Carell was cast as the show's lead, Michael. Rain Wilson as Dwight, who Krasinski says was the perfect fit. Then someone else walked onto the set, a man about Krasinski's age who looked really familiar. Cast in the role of Ryan the Temp was B.J. Novak. Krasinski hadn't seen him since high school. Remember, they were acquaintances even then. But he couldn't believe it. The first person to ever tell Krasinski he had the potential to become an actor would be standing alongside him at his first real acting job. He said it was like a fever dream. They shot the pilot, and that week, Jenna Fisher turned 30. She later said she didn't invite any of her brand new castmates to her birthday party because, truthfully, she figured she'd never see them again. But NBC 
greenlit the series. Krasinski moved his life to Los Angeles, but he got a second job on his off days, waiting tables. He said that's how little confidence he had. On March 24, 2005, The Office premiered. But every week, an NBC executive would walk on set and tell the cast he loved what they were doing, but that the latest episode would probably be the last one. They were tanking in the ratings. He kept saying, the network just doesn't get it. So Krasinski asked set executive for a DVD of the first six episodes. So when the show inevitably failed and he moved back to Minnesota, he could show his mom footage of that time he almost made it. Krasinski said The Office was looking like one of those shows that was brilliant, but canceled. But until the day came when NBC officially pulled the plug, every morning before heading off to set, Krasinski went to the same diner for breakfast. The show aired Tuesday nights, And one Wednesday morning, he walked in for what felt like the millionth time. He sat down, ordered the usual. But when he looked up, he realized everyone was staring at him. The night before, they'd aired their eighth episode, titled Sexual Harassment. And for the first time, their ratings had spiked. For the first time, Krasinski was getting recognized. And the ratings kept climbing. The average viewership in their second season reached 8 million. People started stopping Krasinski on the street. One said, look, I'm watching you right now on my iPod. To which Krasinski said, what's an iPod? And the stranger shoved a tiny rectangle in his face that indeed had his face on it. In its nine-season run... The Office was nominated for 42 Emmys and won five, catapulting John Krasinski from waiter to household name, from actor to producer, writer, and director, from TV character to movie star, and from terrified hostage number four to one of Time Magazine's most influential people. We'll be right back. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I heard the word no so often, it started to feel like a second name. Uzo Aduba. It's said that many Igbo people from southeast Nigeria are bestowed names at birth that hold great meaning. Names that might be rich in ancestral significance or have unique stories behind them. For Nanyam Aduba, her given name meant stay with me. Growing up in Nigeria, Nanyam survived many hardships. She was told she'd never walk again after a battle with polio, and yet she went on to become a singles tennis champion in college. She witnessed the horrors of war firsthand during the Igbo genocide in Nigeria's civil war in the 60s. She became a young, widowed mother of two before moving her family across the world to the United States to provide opportunity for herself and for her children. It was in Medfield, Massachusetts, Nanyam would earn her master's degree and become a professor. She'd also meet her second husband and have three more children for a total of five. She'd name her third and middle child Uzo Amaka, or Uzo. It means, the road is good. Growing up in a small New England town was not easy for Uzo Aduba. She says her name was often first in roll call at school, but her teachers had no idea how to pronounce it. Aduba was one of only a few black students in her class. She noticed boys seemed most interested in the girls with blonde hair and blue eyes, the same kinds of girls she saw on TV and in magazines. Aduba internalized quickly that there was a standard, and she wasn't it. 
after school one day, an embarrassed Aduba begged her mother to change her name to something more mainstream, something easier to pronounce, like Zoe. But her mother said, if people can learn how to say Michelangelo, Dostoyevsky, and Tchaikovsky, they can learn to say Uzo Aduba. After school, Aduba was a track star and figure skater. After practice, she could be found studying and singing all around the house. So when Aduba turned 12 years old, her mother sought a place to channel her daughter's musical energy by signing her up for the church choir. Soon, Aduba was cast in a school play, The Secret Garden. She played a ghost with no lines. But one day after class, the drama teacher pulled her aside. She asked the budding performer what her plans were after high school. Aduba admitted she had toyed with the idea of becoming a lawyer. But that's when the teacher asked if she'd ever considered attending a performing arts college. Then the teacher paused, backed up a beat, and asked whether Aduba even knew one could study arts in college. Aduba said in that moment, a light bulb went off in her brain. The realization of what she was supposed to do with her life. She marched home and told her professor mother that she was going to become a performer. Maybe an opera singer. Her mother was supportive. Aduba says she learned in that moment her mom's American dream was to watch her children live out their dreams. Whatever they may be. Aduba earned herself an athletic scholarship to run track at Boston University. She would become an all-time top sprinter at the school, setting records and filling a trophy case. But when she wasn't sprinting 55 meters in 7.07 seconds, Aduba enrolled in creative courses like opera, classical theater, music theory, and Shakespeare. She said in the morning she'd roll around on the floor in movement class. By the afternoon, she'd be studying the history of Rachmaninoff. And in the evening, belting Aida. But when she ultimately reflected on her days, it was the rolling around on the floor part she liked the most, using her body, not just her voice. And Aduba thought, maybe she wouldn't become an opera singer after all. Maybe in her core, she was an actor. Over the next few years, Aduba began taking part in school productions, with lines this time. And in 2005, when Aduba graduated from Boston University with a degree in classical voice, she came up against the question all fresh grads do. What next? And that's when her uncle gave her some advice. He said... Your parents didn't leave Nigeria for you to stand still, Uzo. So she packed up her things and moved to the theater capital of North America, New York City. Aduba got herself a job waiting tables in Greenwich Village. Meanwhile, she kept her uncle's words close to heart and welcomed any opportunity to practice her craft. She took on roles for free, she auditioned for local productions, and soon she started getting some callbacks. 
and after three months pounding the pavement, Aduba landed her first gig at the theater for the new city in the East Village. Then a couple other roles followed. She played Dessa Rose in the New Repertory Theater, Abyssinia at the Godspeed Theater, and Amphiarius in The Seven at the New York Theater Workshop. Then she was up for a role that could truly springboard her career. The lead in the Broadway production of The Color Purple, she said the part was perfect for her. But she ultimately lost the role. Aduba said this period in her life brought low lows. Shows closed unexpectedly, or worse, never opened. And the magic of landing her first role on Broadway went poof in an instant. So she called her mother. Aduba says her mother sacrificed everything so she could have a bright, stable future. And here she was, a first-generation immigrant daughter pursuing the least stable profession there was. But not once did her mother play the practical parent or plead with her daughter to pursue another career. She simply told her to just keep pushing. For six years, Aduba kept pushing. She pushed through a lot of rejection, of heartbreak. But peppered in between were wins, like performing a one-woman show, and finally, in 2007, achieving her Broadway debut, a huge accomplishment. But it wouldn't earn her enough to quit her day job at the restaurant. One night, Aduba was singing a version of By Your Side from the Godspell revival at the Circle in the Square Theater when a woman approached her from the audience. The woman was a manager, and she had a question for Aduba. Have you ever done a pilot season? Aduba's new manager saw a future for the classically trained theater actor standing before her. TV. Aduba hadn't auditioned for anything that didn't involve a stage before, but she was open. Then her manager made another declarative statement. Aduba would stop auditioning for theater roles altogether. From then on, it was film or television or bust. Aduba was skeptical, but the 31-year-old waitress decided to jump, hoping Annette would appear. In her first months as an aspiring television actor, Aduba says all she got were no's. In fact, she was hearing the word no so often, she said it started to feel like a second name. Looking back, Aduba had never really seen anyone like herself in the film and television space. Maybe Whoopi Goldberg. But as she kept facing rejection, she thought, maybe there was no seat for her at that table. She didn't land a single part. Then she watched her savings dwindle. In 2012, Aduba says she was on the brink. The plan was failing. Her manager lined up an audition. It was a pilot for a new series with an unusual premise. Writer Genji Kohan, known for her work on shows like Friends, 
Sex and the City, Will and Grace, Gilmore Girls, and most recently, Weeds, was working on a new series. It would take place inside a minimum security women's federal prison in upstate New York. Based on true events, the series would walk viewers through the story of Piper Chapman, a woman sentenced to 15 months in prison, 10 years after getting caught up in her ex-girlfriend's drug smuggling scheme, only to find herself on the same cell block as said ex, along with a cast of other interesting characters. The show was to be called Orange is the New Black. Aduba was auditioning for the part of a former track star, an inmate named Janae. Her manager thought Aduba was a shoo-in, being a former track star herself. So Aduba thought a little about what a character in prison might look like. For instance, how they might do their hair. And she remembered a hairdo she'd done for a play. When she was in Godspell, she had bantu knots, tightly wound sectioned twists. And she thought, that would be an easy hairstyle for someone in prison. It only took 30 minutes to do. So she went to the audition. Then, like she did after all the others, she went home. Aduba's manager lined up another TV audition. Not a pilot this time but the role of an unnamed nurse on a single episode of Blue Bloods. Aduba made her way to the audition, but when she got there, or what she thought was there, she realized she'd been given the wrong address. Turns out, she was supposed to be in Brooklyn. So Aduba hustled across the city and arrived at the audition 20 minutes late. She says a major faux pas to casting directors not off to a good start. It was also September. She was drenched in sweat, out of breath. She found an industrial fan to slump in front of until she was summoned into the audition room. Aduba did everything in her power to salvage the audition. But moments later, she was walking back out of that room, past the industrial fan, and back onto the sticky streets of Brooklyn. She said she knew in her soul she wasn't going to get the job. She was late. You just can't do that. She wondered if her lateness was a sign from above, that she should start taking all these no's at face value. Maybe it was a sign she wasn't doing what she was supposed to be doing. On the subway home, Aduba burst into tears. She'd been rejected for months on end. She closed her eyes and said the words, I'm giving up. Aduba said she doubted herself before in the business that is show, but never in her heart of hearts did she decide to walk away. This was her breaking point. She found herself looking back on her life, wondering if she should have gone with her initial instinct as a girl to pursue a respectable, stable career, law, something guaranteed to pull her bank account out of the red and make her immigrant parents proud and ensure her mother's journey wasn't in vain. If she went back to school now, she could still make it happen. When Aduba got home that day, she turned on the TV. She scrolled through her DVR 
And sitting in the unplayed column was an episode of Oprah's Masterclass featuring Lorne Michaels. It had been waiting to be watched for some time. For no reason, Aduba found herself repeatedly skipping over it. But today, she pressed play. As Oprah and Michaels talked over Michael's storied career, they ventured back to his pre-Saturday Night Live days. And Michaels mentioned that when SNL first aired in 1975, many people didn't like it. But he never gave up. Then he said, Keep the faith. And those three words flashed across the screen. When the episode ended, Aduba started thinking about how and when she was going to tell the people in her life she was quitting acting. She called her sister and invited her over for wine and sushi. She'd tell her in person. As far as her manager, she decided to give it the weekend and call her on Monday. But in that moment, her phone rang. It was her manager. When Aduba picked up the phone, her manager said, I have some really good news for you. Aduba was listening. Remember that audition you went on, Orange is the New Black? Well, you didn't get it. Well, that was par for the course. Just when she thought her day couldn't get any worse. And what a weird way of twisting the knife. But her manager wasn't done. She told Aduba that she didn't land the part of the former track star character, Janae. But they did want her for another role. She was offered a two-episode arc as Suzanne Warren, or as Warren's fellow Litchfield inmates would call her, Crazy Eyes. Aduba paused. She couldn't help but wonder what part of her audition made the casting director think, She's not right for the track star, but I think we've found our resident crazy person. On the other hand, this could be her very first role on television. Her very first yes. Aduba said when her sister arrived at her apartment that night, sushi and wine in hand, the tissues by her phone were still damp. But the night quickly turned from somber to celebratory. When Aduba finally got the script pages for Suzanne Warren, she says she realized behind the crazy eyes was a person, a soul with good intentions, just none of the awareness to back it up. She said the show's writers put it best in their stage direction on the first page of her script. Suzanne is innocent like a child, except... Children aren't scary. She said she pictured a grown adult with a pacifier and a sledgehammer. They started shooting Orange is the New Black in early 2013, and it wasn't long before the creators decided Uzo Aduba's two-episode story arc should span across an entire season. is the new black premiered on netflix july 11 2013 and it quickly became the streaming giant's highest rated series 
After just one season, Orange was nominated for 14 Emmys. And Uzo Aduba won for Outstanding Guest Actress in a Comedy. The year after that, she'd win again, this time for Best Supporting Actress in a Drama. Netflix revealed 105 million people globally had watched at least one episode of Orange is the New Black. In 2019, Time magazine called Orange the decade's most important show, telling the stories of marginalized women typically ignored by the mainstream. In Orange's seven-year run, Aduba would become the most awarded cast member of the series. In 2020, she won a third Emmy, Best Supporting Actress in a Limited Series for Mrs. America, making Uzo Aduba, the actress rejected for parts, who felt like a disappointment and who made a teary subway car vow to give up acting altogether, the third actor in history to win an Emmy Award across three different genres. And in all her speeches, she thanked her mother, who stayed with her every step of the way. Oh, and one last thing. One day, Aduba went back and found that fateful Lorne Michaels Masterclass episode. She wanted to pull up those three poignant words that had flashed across the screen that day. Keep the faith. The last mental image she had right before landing her big break. She was going to tweet a picture out to her followers as a moment of real significance in her life. But as she re-watched the episode, that moment was nowhere to be found. Turns out, those three words never appeared on the screen after all. Crazy, isn't it? It's always illuminating to look back over our stories at the end of the season. We say that rejection comes in many sour flavors, but it's how you react to rejection that makes all the difference. In today's episode, Uzo Aduba gave us a wonderful thought to hold on to. Translated, her name means, the road is good. Even though our stories were so varied, encompassing different people chasing different goals, they all had one thing in common. Every slammed door, every unreturned phone call, every failed audition, and every non-believing gatekeeper all led to valuable learning, which led to an opportunity, which eventually led to success. The road is good. Everybody struggles with rejection. It happens at all stages, it can happen at all ages, but the recurring theme is to reframe how you view rejection. It is not the end of the road. Rejections are merely speed bumps and necessary detours. When you are a pioneer, those speed bumps come fast and hard. We saw this with Rubik's Cube and Rent composer Jonathan Larson. We saw it with South Park, Airbnb, and Jesus Christ Superstar. You are rejected because your idea is too new. Or you are considered an outsider, like Cindy Lauper, Rocky Blyer, and Fritz Pollard. 
But that outsider quality is actually your greatest advantage. It will eventually be your ticket to success. You have to protect it at all costs and stay stubborn. You just have to survive the trough of sorrow. Sydney's favorite insight from this season was found in the Misty Copeland episode. That when you are at your lowest point, pull out your compass. Because remembering your why will sustain you in your darkest moment. Your true north will point the way. My favorite insight came from the Airbnb story. When the founders were starving for investment, the worst possible thing happened. The Great Recession. But the longer the recession lasted, the more people needed to find alternative ways to earn cash. And the longer the recession lasted, the more people needed to find a cheaper way to travel. And that was the essence of the Airbnb idea. The obstacle was really an opportunity. In the end, the road is good. Uzo Aduba says that what her name represents is precious to her. She said there have been many struggles, trials, battles, and losses. In those moments, she has reminded herself that the road is good. By doing that, she has always emerged. Never, ever give up. Regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast, Door Slams, 1,689, Rejection Letters, 4,872, Unanswered Phone Calls, 11,241, Tears, 1,252,700,000, Triumphs? Countless. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in our Airstream mobile recording studio. By the way, to learn more about the Terrastream, visit Terry's Instagram at Terry O. Influence. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. I wholeheartedly and unabashedly reject phone calls from unknown numbers and known numbers. I don't like phone calls. Research Allison Pinches. Allison rejects the so-called rule that one has to throw out their socks when they get holes in them. They're holy socks, after all. Our director is Callie O'Reilly, who rejects chewing gum with the fire of a thousand burning suns. Engineer, Jeff Devine, who happily rejects judgment, except when said judgment is toward pop country enthusiasts. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Debbie, capital R, rejects orange bronzer. Our theme music is by Ian Lefevre, who rejects reality. Oh, sorry, that's reality television. And Ari Posner, who happily rejects quiche and will not be elaborating. Major sources for this and all episodes are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. While you're there, subscribe to our newsletter for giveaways, bonus content, and behind-the-scenes fun. We have a big announcement coming up you won't want to miss. Follow us on social at apostrophe pod. 
If you like this series, you might also enjoy our other apostrophe podcasts, like Under the Influence with Terry O'Reilly and Surviving Life with Survivor Man Les Stroud. We regret to inform you this series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly, who happily rejects rudimentary math, which I fear is hereditary. A giant heartfelt thank you to our listeners. Have a safe and wonderful holiday. We'll see you in the spring for more rejection in season four. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.